Well, I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, continuing on in our study of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes can be depressing to uh, study, and uh, hopefully I will bring out some positives, uh, but you're going to have to wait a little bit, so hang in there this morning. Uh, as usual, I'm going to paint the picture that Solomon is painting for us here in the passage and expound upon it a bit, but uh, when we get to the end, we'll have some good news there, so you might just have to hang on for a moment and get through the dark, darkness before the sunshine bursts through the clouds. Ecclesiastes 3.16, we're going to read down chapter 4, verse 6. The preacher says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Oh, may God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, the late author David Foster Wallace began a commencement speech thus. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then, Eventually, one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? That's a joke. You can laugh. <laughs> well, he explains what he's talking about in his speech. Uh, he says, the immediate point of the fish story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Fish probably aren't aware that they're in the water any more than we're probably daily aware that we're breathing the air around us. 
Well, Solomon here is attempting to show us the most obvious, ubiquitous, and important realities that we might not notice about our world because they're just simply part of our daily lives. It's the way things have always been. We've gotten used to this life under the sun as he describes it. We don't know anything different than that. So Solomon wants to bring it to our attention. He wants to point out the water to the fish, so to speak. He he sticks our face into the realities of life so that we can see and hear and taste and touch reality. And the reality that he paints for us is that we live in a dog-eat-dog world. This is the water in which we are swimming. And Solomon wants you to look at it. Well, in the sitcom Cheers, Sam asks hey, what's happening, Norm? And Norm replies, it's a dog-eat-dog world, Sammy, and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear. (laughs) Well, that's a humorous exchange, but living in a dog-eat-dog world is not funny, especially if you are not the alpha dog. So here's the first point, and this is the point that Solomon uh, is making, generally, in this passage Dog will eat dog in this life under the sun. And he paints a grim picture here, uh, and he crafts this picture with four dark colors, and they just follow one upon the other. A, the first point that he makes here about this dog-eat-dog life we live is that in the place of justice and righteousness, there is wickedness. Verse 16, he says, In the place of justice there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. That's the reality of this world. Now, justice and righteousness are are very similar words. They refer to people being treated fairly, rightly, according to God's law, not just according to man's law, because as we've seen from our very own history here in the United States, that you can make laws that encode injustice against others. Jim Crow laws, for example. God's law is what dictates what is right and good. But yet we see throughout our nation, throughout the world, that there is injustice. And in the place of injustice, there's not just apathy, there is wickedness. And justice and righteousness, of course, these are front and center in our day. People are jockeying for what is justice, what is right. And hopefully we can come to a place where more people are treated fairly. And that would be desirable for everyone. And that's what God desires, of course. But one wonders if it's not just going to be one person coming into power and traded, you know, who was, who was powerless and then injustice going in the other direction. We, we tend to fall into these things where we take advantage of one another. It's human nature. Well, the third thing that he says, I'm skipping B, C. The third thing he points out is in verse 1 of chapter 4, and that is oppressors oppressing the oppressed. He sees all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and, and he just sees the... The oppressed can do nothing but weep. 
they have no power. They have no one to advocate for them. And they are at the mercy of their oppressors. You know, we love a movie, don't we? Where we see someone being mistreated, they face injustice, and, and then everything turns around and the plot is the revenge. It's the revenge movie where someone comes and, and pays back the, the wicked oppressor. Well, that's, we love that because in, somewhere in our heart, somewhere in our DNA, the way God has made us, we, we want there to be justice and not oppression. Well, the fourth thing he talks about here is the envy-driven life. Verse 4 of chapter 4. I saw the toil and skill and work come from a man's, come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Why, why do people work so hard? Why do, they, why do they join in the rat race? Why do they slave away from 9 to 5? It's because they're trying to keep up with the Joneses. They're trying to get the goods, get the material possessions to have a certain standard of living. They're trying to keep up. And as the old bumper sticker slogan went, they believe the one with the most toys at the ends wins. The most toys but the problem is we all die, as Solomon points out, and someone else enjoys your toys after you're dead and gone. See, we can get caught up, and in fact, everything in our society, all the advertisements that we watch on TV and everywhere else, there's, you know, that's ubiquitous advertising, is continuously feeding us this, this idea that we need more that we need better phones and better cars and bigger houses and, and more money and more, more, more. And it's never enough. And then he says, back to the second point, B, which is back up in 318, he says that people are but beasts. When you think about uh, the lack of justice, the lack of righteousness, the oppression, the materialism in which we live our lives and how it is cutthroat and people aren't interested in promoting others. They're only in it for themselves. He says, I said in my heart, verse 18, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. They live like animals. Nature red and tooth and claw, the strong eating the weak. That's the picture he's painting here. And not only are we like animals in the way that we behave towards one another, but we are animals in that we're going to die. He points that out as well. You know, if we see a, a nature show and a lion eats a gazelle, we, we th may think, oh, well, that poor gazelle, but we're not going to bring charges against the lion. You know, that's just the way it is. That's nature, right? That's what lions do. But humans are not supposed to be like animals. We're not supposed to live that way. We weren't created to, to, to live and behave as we do as if we lived in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, which we do. That's the way people are. Well, his conclusion to this is that it is... It is so bad that you're better off dead. And more so, better off having never been born in the first place to see all the evil things that go on 
in the world. He says that in verses 2 3. Well, why? Why is our world this way? You know, we can look out and if we take an honest assessment like Solomon is forcing us to do of what the world is like around us, an honest assessment, we can see that we're becoming more violent. I had a friend in England who, uh, he would go down to his local pub on occasion and he would try to witness to his friends there at the bar. He was a real man's man, rugby player, uh, you know, just a bloke, you know, good old guy. And he, he was having a discussion with one of his friends, and he said, uh, his friend told him, you know, he said, I think the world is becoming a better place. And my friend goes, Dad, do you read the newspaper? I mean, there were more people killed in the 20th century than, than all the centuries before. And we're not doing a good job so far in the 21st. The world is not becoming a better place. We have more capacity to kill one another than ever before. Well, amazingly, David Foster Wallace, who I don't think ever embraced Christianity, but he was all all around it, and it's a shame when I tell you more about him, but he goes on in that speech that I referred to earlier, is describing the water that the fish are swimming in. What is it that mankind has that we may not be aware of, and he says this. This is it. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It is our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience that you've had that you are not at the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is right there in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV or your monitor or whatever. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. We're self-centered, and that's where all of this comes from. He goes on. He says, there's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, see, he wasn't a Christian, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough, It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of of being found out. 
So isn't that true? I mean, that is really all about worshiping yourself, whether it's worshiping uh, your power or money or your beauty or your intellect. All these things are about you, about yourself. And that's what happens. Why is there injustice? Why would someone take advantage of someone else? Because I want what you've got. I want to take it from you, or I want you to serve me in some way. That's the picture that we have painted for us, and this guy's helping us see the underlying reason for it. It's our natural self-centeredness. He goes on to say, The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, is it that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They are the, they're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom, the freedom to be lords of our own tiny, skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. So you see, at the base root of the injustice, the oppression, the wickedness, the envy, the pride described here by Solomon is self-worship. And it started in the Garden of Eden. It's as old as humanity itself almost. As soon as Satan told Adam and Eve, you know, eat this fruit and you'll be like God's. Don't trust what God's saying. He's keeping something from you. You can be like God. And they took the bait and bit the apple, so to speak. And as a result of that, they lost peace with God and peace with creation. They lost meaningful work because they had all those things in the Garden of Eden. They had fellowship with God. They could walk with Him in the cool of the day. They had dominion over the creatures. They could live forever. They had meaningful work tending the garden and naming the animals and so forth. They lost all these things, and now the sorry history of humanity is the result. Well, the question that Solomon is wanting us to think about here as we look at our situation is, how do you live in a, this world full of wickedness, oppression, and envy? How, how do you navigate this life? I said before that dog will eat dog in this life under the sun. Well, the second point is this, the wolf will dwell with the lamb in Christ's kingdom. The last thing that he says in this section is, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. We might think having two hands full of something would be good, but you really don't want to have a bunch of toil, you know, uh, wearisome labor is the good definition of that word. And a striving after wind, not only is it wearisome labor, it's pointless, it's empty, it's not lasting. 
A handful of quietness is better than that. And that word quietness means peace of mind, tranquility, or rest. You know, close your eyes and think of your happy place. You know, that place, you know, maybe it's the beach with a nice fruity drink in your hand or at a mountain stream with uh, not a care in the world. That's the picture. That's the quietness. God has always offered tranquility and rest. You see, he did that and he gave that to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they sinned. That's what they had, tranquility and rest. Yes, they worked, but they had rest as well. They had peace. They had tranquility. And when God called a people to himself, the Israelites, what did he promise them? When they were living in Egypt, under bondage, slavery, oppression, he says, I want to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And the prophets promised that every one would be under his own vine and fig tree and experience shalom, peace. And then, of course, Isaiah, the prophet, promised that one day in the messianic kingdom, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand over the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God created us, to have a relationship with him, to know him. That knowledge of the Lord is not just knowledge about him, but it's a knowledge of him, to know him personally, to, to be united to him and to have not only unity with him, but community with him, as Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. So, the first thing that we need to understand if we want to live in this dog-eat-dog world is that we need to get our worship right. Instead of worshiping ourselves, we need to turn to the one we were designed to worship, the one who is valuable, the Lord himself, and to come to know him in a deeper way. That's the first step, and we can't have any peace, any tranquility until we get that relationship right because we'll always be out for ourselves until we replace the idol of self with something else. You see, there's a great sermon written in the 1800s, and its title was, basically, I'm quoting it just, might not be just quite perfect, but idols cannot be removed, they must be replaced. And it goes back to what we just said, that... that uh, Everybody worships something. You, you cannot help but ascribe worth and value to something over everything else. There's something in your life that's most important. What is that thing? And usually it's ourselves. We need to replace ourselves there in that throne with the Lord. That's what we were created for. That's when we're really living. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are labor." and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Didn't that sound nice? Doesn't that sound wonderful? Rest for your soul. Not striving after whatever the new thing is. Not spending your days in wearisome toil, spinning your wheels, never quite getting there, having an infinite hole in your heart that's never filled. Rest for your souls. That's what Jesus promises to those who would come to him. So the first thing is to find that peace, the peace with God through Christ. If we're going to live tranquil lives, quiet lives, we've got to have the Lord because there is no peace. There is no ultimate peace without him. And then the second thing, a couple of things that Solomon mentions here that he comes to conclusions about. Uh, Basically, I can sum it up by saying trust God. As we live and have a relationship with God, continue to trust him with our lives. Look at what he says in verse 22. I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Rejoice in your work, for that that is your lot. So if you're trusting in the Lord... Uh, God gives everyone something to do. Uh, That's one of the great teachings of the Reformation. You know, before the Reformation, everyone, especially the the church uh, as it was uh, in the day, uh, they believed that the priests and those who were engaged in religious activity, the monks, those were the ones who had a special calling. And they were a bit closer to God than everybody else. But the reformers said, whether you're a preacher, whether you're picking up the garbage, whether you're a dishwasher, a lawyer, a doctor, a banker, a businessman, whether you own a shop, whatever you do, you can serve God in that capacity as long as it's a legal thing and a good thing to do. Work. Everyone's called to something different. But the point is to trust God with it, to to serve the Lord and your fellow human beings with the work that you do. That's one good way to discern whether what you're doing is a good thing to do or not. Does it benefit other people? Is it a good thing for the world to have you in the, your employ? And uh, is it something that you can do to God's glory? That doesn't mean you have to work each day and say glory to God or praise the Lord every time something happens, but can you live for the Lord in that capacity, in that place? God needs people everywhere to shine forth the light of Christ. So wherever you are, trust God. Have, have, uh, give Him your work and trust God for your lot. See, God has a lot uh, uh, and it, you might call it an inheritance because the psalmist uses it that way. He thanks God for his inheritance, his lot, that which God has given to him. You know, the Israelites divided the land and everyone got an inheritance, a lot. It was what was apportioned to them. And in our lives, if we're trusting in God, we can trust that he will give us everything that we need. He will dispose to us what it is that we need doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard. It's the opposite. He condemns that here. He says, you know, he who, he who is idle, who does nothing, is eating his own flesh. He's, he's just killing himself without, with, with doing nothing. You need to be doing something for the Lord. doesn't mean you necessarily have to have a job, but you need to be serving the Lord somehow. 
You know, even if you're shut in, you can pray for others. But trust God with your lot. He will provide for you. Jesus said, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You're not going to flourish by chasing after clothes and, and food and drink. You're going to prosper by pursuing his kingdom. And he'll provide for you. He'll give you your lot. He'll give you what you need and maybe more than you need. But it's all in his hands. And that goes back to the thing I said first. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your work. Trust him with everything. Live for him, not for yourself, but for the one who has created you for a relationship with himself. And then also in the trust God department, verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. We see the wickedness, we see the injustice, we see uh, oppression all over the world. Today is not only Reformation Day, it's also a day when we pray for the persecuted church. Uh, we think about that oppression against God's people. But we just have to trust that even though we should work hard for justice in our lives and in the lives of others, it will not be complete until the Lord returns and ushers in his kingdom fully. There will always be oppression and wickedness and injustice in this earth. We can't usher in a utopia with our own efforts. It has to be the Lord ushering it in. God has a day when he will make everything right. And we may live lives full of injustice, but one day God is going to make it right. Sometimes that means we have to wait longer than we'd like to. But trust the Lord. How do we navigate through this life? You know, if we have a purpose and we're trusting in Him, and we're at peace with God, uh, we can navigate this life. We don't have to fear. We've been singing a lot. You see the Reformers and these hymns that we sang talk a lot about having confidence in the Lord, trusting in the Lord. Even in the face of persecution and difficulties of life, the Lord is on our side, and we can trust Him. He will give us what we need. Well, sadly, David Foster Wallace, I, you know, he... He was so insightful, and he talked uh, all around Christianity, but he never quite got there. And sadly, he suffered from depression and addiction, and he ended up coming to the conclusion that Solomon did that it was better off to die than to live, and he killed himself when he was 46 years old. If only he had looked to Christ all that he had taught would have really come into his heart in a way that he probably couldn't even imagine. And the joy and the peace and the strength that he needed for life would have been provided for him. I don't like to write people off, so I don't know where he is today. He may have repented in his last moments. But from all appearances, it seems that he never did turn to the Lord. Such an insightful man. But may the Lord grant us grace to turn to him, to find peace and to trust and to live a life of quietness, enjoying our work, 
that which God has given us to do and trust the Lord that he will provide for us as we live through all the problems and difficulties we see in our lives and in the world in which we live. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a difficult passage in that it makes us look at the uncomfortable truth that our world is really broken more than we could imagine. We're so used to it. And that we're the problem. That our human self-centeredness and lack of God worship is at the heart of all the problems that we have. Lord, this has been so since Adam and Eve rebelled against you. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to always trust you with with our lives always worship you above everything else lord help us with that we pray that you would enable us to do so by your spirit we are prone to wander lord we feel it and we ask for your help and lord i pray that there's there if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you in a personal relationship that they would call upon you that they would turn from their self-centeredness and sin and find rest in you. You said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and you would give them rest, and I pray that they would come to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.